But uh, if you want to just be blessed, come back tonight for the service. As we talk a little bit more about the tabernacle and about that Holy of Holies and how we gain access, isn't it a privilege to know that you and I can boldly approach the throne of God? That we do not have to come like uh, cowards. We do not have to come uh, in any kind of careless fashion. We can come boldly to the throne of God because He's given us that access through Jesus Christ. Whoever lives to make intercession for us. I want you to turn, if you would, to the last words Jesus ever said to the church. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to talk for the next few weeks on the seven churches in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Five of the seven churches, Jesus had the same message for them. The last words of Jesus were not the words of the Great Commission. The last thing Jesus told the church to do was not go and make disciples and teach and baptize. The last thing that Jesus ever said to the church is found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 when he said, repent or else. The last word that Jesus said to the church through John as he dictated these words to John was, John, tell the churches to repent. John is exiled. He is on the Isle of Patmos around A.D. 95. The Christians are being persecuted by Emperor Domitian. And John finds himself on this island and he has a confrontation with the Lord. And the Lord tells him to write down some things. If you look at verse 19, uh, the word is given there, what the book of Revelation is all about. Verse 19, chapter 1. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen... That's past. And the things which are present and the things which shall take place after these things. These letters to these churches are God's plumb line, God's yardstick, His measuring stick by which a church can look at itself and see how it stacks up with what the Lord says a church is supposed to be. When we want to know what God wants us to be, when we want to know the kind of characteristics that He applauds and that He congratulates a church on, and when we want to know what He says are evidences of weaknesses in a church, we always go to the Word of God. We do not compare our church to another church. We don't compare our church to another denomination. We don't measure ourselves against something on this earth. We measure ourselves against the holy written Word of God and find out where that Word says we are supposed to be, and then we line ourselves up in accordance with it. Paul had been in Ephesus as part of one of his missionary journeys, and there with Priscilla and Aquila, he started and founded the church at Ephesus. The record of that is found in Acts chapter 18 through Acts chapter 20. At one point in that, Paul says he fears that wolves will come in and steal them, steal the flock. Paul established a church in a city that was corrupt. Paul established a church in a body of believers right in the back door of Satan's playground. I want you to see, first of all, this morning as we look at this first of the seven churches, for if you follow them on a map, it'll take a geographic course that would take you from one church to the next as you would visit those churches in order. And so we start this morning with the church at Ephesus. Paul has wrote to them and he talked to them. John, tradition says, was buried at Ephesus and Timothy was their first pastor. Pretty good track record. And yet, this church, some 40 years after Paul has gone to be with the Lord, needs revival. 
the city. Let's look at it if we could. Ephesus was kind of like New York City or New Orleans. It was, a, it was a thriving seaport town. It was a cosmopolitan area. I think it's where the baby boomers in Asia Minor in the first century must have gone to live. A lot of jobs there. They drove a lot of BMW chariots and stuff. And they, it was a great place to live. A lot of activity, a lot of good restaurants, a lot of good things to do. And, and in fact, the name Ephesus means desirable. The city was desirable. There in that city was a pagan worship around the Temple of Diana. The Temple of Diana was built to the fertility goddess. And it is said of those worship services that they were nothing more than a worship of a perpetual festival of vice. The Temple of Diana took 280 years to build. It was considered one of the wonders of the world. And in this city, in this great area where there was a trade route and there were so many people coming in and out, this city where so much of Roman culture was influencing that town, in this city, God placed a church. Now that's the city, very quickly a summation of the city. Great, growing, metropolitan area with a little small church tucked in a corner somewhere. Secondly, I want you to see the correspondent. And turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. The correspondent. For the correspondent is not John. John is the scribe. He is the minuensis. He is the secretary. He's just the one that's writing down what Jesus has told him to write. The correspondent is Jesus. Look at verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." In that picture of Jesus, very quickly you see that he is pictured by what he is wearing and the color of his hair and all that is said about him in verses 12 through 18, he is pictured as prophet, priest, and king. Jesus Christ, resurrected and ascended at the right hand of the Father, is the correspondent of this letter, and he writes to the angel of the church or to the messenger of the church. That word is translated messenger in some translations. Angel in other, it means elder or pastor of the church. One of the things that most pastors don't realize is that if God's going to do something in a church, he's got to start with pastor. He's got to start with a person who stands behind the pulpit because a dirty pulpit won't produce a clean pew. Never will. God started with the pastor. He said, you tell the pastor that this is what I say. And so God, first of all, was speaking to the pastor before he ever said anything to the people. That's the way it ought to work. See, preaching ought not to be at you. It ought to be as a result of what God said to me, and that spills over. 
not just coming up with a sermon. That's the correspondent. He is giving the message, and he tells him emphatically to write to the one, and he identifies himself in, in chapter 2, the one who walks among the golden lampstands. That is a reference to the continual presence of God among his church. The continual presence of God. He is the correspondent. Now, let's look quickly at the church. His church had a lot of virtues. I mean, there are a lot of things about it, and we're going to look at it in the commendation about what he said about the church, but this was the kind of church that you'd visit and join the first Sunday you visited there. I mean, they just had everything in the world going for them. They had it all together. They were right in so many areas. He pays them compliments. He examines all their virtues, and, and you'd kind of look at a church like this, and you think, boy, that's the kind of people I'd like to be around. I'd like to go to worship with those folks. This church established by Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. If you'll notice in Acts chapter 18 through 20, if you'll take time to read that, you will see that Paul never preached against the temple of Diana. Now, isn't that funny? Here he is in a city where the fertility goddess, the goddess of sex, is worshipped, and Paul never makes reference to her. You know what Paul preached about for two and a half years? Jesus. Folks, when people get a hold of who Jesus is... You don't have to tell them what's bad in this world. Jesus will tell them. He'll take care of them. And sometimes our preaching is not like Paul's preaching. Sometimes we spend more time advertising the bad than exalting the Lord. And we come together in this church, and this church was exalting Christ, and Paul had exalted Christ, and they were devoted, and they were disciplined people. Now I want you to see the commendation. For there are nine points of the commendation, and it falls under three broad categories. Paul, Paul talks about the good things about the church and the things that he was concerned about. John now, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, dictated to him by the Lord, John writes down these words, and he talks about the commendation, and that's found in verses 2 and 3. The commendation for the church. First of all, they were right in doctrine. Right in doctrine. Look at verse 2 if you would. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. They were right in doctrine. Boy, these folks could spot a heretic. They studied apologetics. These people were discerning. They didn't just go off and chase some religious guru. They didn't follow a religious fad. They didn't find a new how-to book and decide, well, let's go chase that a little while, and let's go do this a little while, and then let's come over and let's do this. They stayed with the stuff. These people stayed with the things that got them where they were. They stayed with their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were right in doctrine. Now, let me tell you something about that. One of the problems that we have is when we try to let the light in, sometimes we let bugs in too. You ever notice that? I know that's never happened since you live below the gnat line. But have you ever noticed that when you turn on the light that the bugs come? Folks, listen. Anytime the light of God's Word is being given out, Satan's going to stir up his bugs and try to get them into the church. This church was right in doctrine. They turned the light on, but they checked out the people who preached. Not just anybody standing in the pulpit at First Baptist Church in Ephesus. They checked them out. They didn't just go by the resume in the Olin Mills picture. I mean, they wanted to know, where does this person stand? What do they believe? How do they feel? What is their doctrinal position? They absorbed the light. 
But they kept the screen up and kept the bugs out. They were right in their doctrine. Secondly, they were right in discipline. They dealt with sin. They guarded the fellowship. They kept the church pure. It was important to these people that they keep the discipline within the church. We don't hear much about church discipline anymore, which is one reason why people can sin and sin and sin in the church, and we just kind of turn our heads and look the other way, and the world looks at us and says, what do y'all stand for anyway? See, we don't hear much about discipline. Understand this. Satan would rather work as a termite within than as a woodpecker on the outside. He would rather work as a termite within than as a woodpecker on the outside because he can bore more holes and do more damage under the surface quietly, silently, imperceptively. He can do more damage there than he can if you just hear him rattling up against the outside of one of these walls. Before you know it, your structure's weak. But this church was right in their discipline. They guarded the fellowship, and they never condoned evil of any kind. Good church. Third point, they were right in dedication. Notice some words that he uses here. He says they were right in their toil. That word is laborious toil. It's, it's uh, fatiguing toil. They were hard-working people. These people didn't mind serving. They didn't mind working. They didn't mind uh, filling a place of responsibility, and they labored, they toiled to the point of exhaustion. It is said of the average Baptist church that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. This church would have never met that criteria. For these people, they toiled. He didn't say a few toil. He said, I know of your toil, your labor, your hard work, your fatigue, what you've done. Then he says, I know about your perseverance. King James says, patience your endurance, your persistence. You see, they were perseverant. They endured good times, bad times. It didn't matter. This church was not consumed with temporary activities. They were consumed with eternal ministries. They wanted to know what God was up to, and they persevered. They endured. They stood the test of time. This was not just an up-and-down commitment to the Lord. These people stood the test of time and trials and battles in standing and persevering for God. And then he says that you can't endure evil or bad men. You can't bear people who are evil. You can't tolerate evildoers. You see, these folks weren't apathetic about opposition. These folks weren't apathetic about uh, problems and, and evil men and bad men. They took a stand against it. They couldn't endure them. And then he comes to verse 3, and I want to read that to you. Uh, verse 3, try to take it as, as literally as, as I can, and it won't read well, but I want you to listen. I want you to find out why many churches have problems in their dedication. Okay? Let me read verse 3. And endurance you have, and did bear up through the name of me and haven't grown weary. That word is translated in some places fainted. It's a better word, weary. You haven't grown weary. He says you have endurance you have and did bear up through me. And you know why some of us have a problem with dedication? Because we're trying to endure through ourselves. And we're trying to be dedicated in ourselves rather than reading what that verse says and Jesus said about the church, you bear up through the name of me. How do you bear up? How do you stay when the work and the pressure is and you just want to quit and you want to get off and you just want to forget it all? How do you stay with the stuff? You do it through Jesus. You see, we are supposed to have a rest 
attitude with the Lord. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. And one of the reasons why Christians and church members get all bound up and all in bondage and they get so weary and worn down and beaten down is because they haven't learned to do their endurance by bearing up through the name of Jesus. They've done it in their flesh, not through their spirit. And folks, I tell you, you can get tired real quick in church work doing it in your flesh. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take too many hard knocks. It doesn't take too many points of opposition. It doesn't take too much criticism. It doesn't take too many times of going without anybody patting on the back and telling you you did a good job, and you'll quit. Unless you're right in your dedication, and this church was. And they did it through the name of Jesus. Now notice that he says, for my name's sake. They didn't do it for their own glory. They did it for the glory of God. They didn't do it for themselves that they might be recognized. They did it for the glory of God. Their purpose, their goal, and their dedication was for the name of Jesus to be exalted. Our purpose and our goal in what we do, whether we sing or preach or teach or serve or whatever we do, our purpose is not that people would pat us on the back and tell us what a great job we're doing. Our purpose is that the name of Jesus would be exalted, that they would forget us, but they would remember Jesus. That's what the purpose is. And that was the fact that they were right in their dedication. Now, that was the commendation. I wish Jesus had just stopped right here. But he didn't because he goes to a condemnation. And he says, nevertheless, or yet, or but, I've got a problem with you. I've got a charge against you. You have left your first love. Now here's something you need to know about verse 4. One debt, one debt consumed all the credit that was on their account. One debt consumed all their credit. All these good things, nine points of commendation. They were right in doctrine, right in discipline, right in dedication. And all of that washed away by one little phrase, you have left your first love. Now, I want you to notice he did not say you have lost your first love. He said you have left it. You have abandoned your first love. You have deserted your first love. You have walked away. And the implication of those words in the Greek is that they willingly and knowingly did it. Now here's what the Lord's saying. The Lord is saying you've gotten right in your doctrine, you've gotten right in your discipline, and you've got service, and, and you're steadfast, and you're suppressing evil, but you left me because you got to a point where you thought you could do it on your own. And you didn't need me for motivation anymore. Well, you'd been doing it so long. You'd been running the church and things had been going well and you, you got up one morning and you didn't spend any time with me and you didn't talk to me and you didn't fellowship with me and that day went okay. And so you decided, well, I may try that another day. And so you got up and you didn't spend any time with me again and you decided, well, I made it through that day okay. And all of a sudden, gradually, you began to realize that I was not becoming nothing more than a crutch to you and then Lester, you were just in a squeeze that you could pretty well live the Christian life on your own. That was their attitude. Their attitude was, hey, we'll pick up the Lord if we need Him. Hey, we know where He is. We know how we can talk to Him. But right now, we don't need Him. We can go ahead and be right in all these things. Notice, they were not cold in their zeal. They were not cold in their doctrine. They were not cold in their discipline. They were cold in their love. They had left their first love. They had lost 
the pure motives, and they had willingly walked away from a love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They had duty, but there was no delight in it. They were correct, but they were cold. Now, let's just be honest. How many times have you and I served the Lord out of duty with no delight? How many times have you stood to teach a Sunday school class or to work with a children's choir or to teach an admissions program and you've done it and you bit your lip and said, if I can just get through this day, I'll be all right. And you've done it out of cold, hard duty and there's been no joy in your service. My friend, it's God waving the flag in front of you saying, you left your first love. You forgot that the reason that you teach those children, you forgot the reason that you serve is because you first loved me. And your church work has become a job and not a ministry. You've gotten all bound up in being right. But I want you to love me. I don't want you to leave your first love. Now let me ask you, if this can happen to a first century church, 40 years removed from the Apostle Paul, think it can happen to us? Sure can. It can happen to us because, you see, we can be as straight as a gun barrel theologically and be as empty as a gun barrel spiritually. That's why Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees. He said about those Pharisees, you go all the way across the world to win one convert, and you've got all the law memorized. You dot every I and cross every T, and you've memorized the first five books, but you are like a whitewashed, empty tomb. There's nothing inside because you know all about me, but you don't know me. There's never been anybody that had more doctrine and more theology than a Pharisee. And there's never been anybody who wanted to get Jesus on a cross any quicker. You see, there is the coming together, not just of straight doctrine and theology, but there is the coming together of a heart that is warm toward the Lord. Now, I want you to look, if you would, at the characteristics of first love. The characteristics of first love. First of all, first love is exclusive. It's exclusive. First love is exclusive. It means you're preoccupied with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find myself sometimes preoccupied with things other than Jesus. They say, well, you know, I do too because I've got a job. No, I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about my Christian life. I find myself preoccupied with a program or with a method or with a task or with a job. And Jesus kind of comes in wherever he can find a slot to fit. First love is exclusive. Secondly, it is extravagant. It is extravagant. It defies analysis. In fact, the paralysis of the church is too much analysis. That's what's paralyzed a lot of churches. They probe on it like they're probing on a corpse. Too much analysis. It is extravagant. It is not calculating. It doesn't sit down and say, well, how much is this going to cost? By the way, just a little, this is free. The first question a church ought to ask in anything it does is not how much does this cost? The first question it ought to ask is, does God want us as a church to do this? Now that goes for whether you're building, that goes for whether you're remodeling, that goes for whether you're calling a staff member, that goes for starting a new ministry, buying a piece of equipment, it doesn't matter what it is. The question should never be asked first, how much is that going to cost? 
The question ought to always be asked first. Does God want us at this time to do this? And if he does, then the cost is not an issue anymore. Now, amen belong there, but I, you don't have to do it. Exclusive, extravagant, expressive. It doesn't have to be coaxed and begged. It doesn't have to be asked for. It is expressive. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. Exclusive, extravagant, and expressive. When my wife and I started dating, and we've been married 16 years this year, right? Got that one taken care of. We dated for three years before we got married. You know, I fell in love with her. Of course, we've been married 16 years, but I was 12 and she was 9 when we got married. And uh, we're real young. But, you know, we, were, we spent a year and we were in different schools and, and I was uh, about four hours away from her and so I would write her letters and she'd write me letters. And, you know, when I went off to school, I can remember thinking, now, there's going to be weeks at a time that I'm not going to see this girl and I've fallen in love with her and I care about her and, and I think, you know, God's really putting this together. And of course, I wasn't that spiritual at that time, but, but I, you know, I just said, boy, this is great and this is wonderful and, and uh, you know, she probably needs glasses, but that's okay, you know. And so I was going through all of that stuff and I made a commitment when I was driving up to Mississippi College. I said, now, Lord, if that girl will write me, I'll read at least a paragraph out of that letter every day until I get through it. You know I didn't say that. I mean, can't you see me saying, boy, I love this girl. I, I want to see her every weekend. I want to date her. I want to marry her. Can't you see me, my roommate, going to the mailbox and saying, hey, Michael, you got a letter from, from Terry? I'll get it later. I need to go over and wash some socks first. <laughs> Maybe mop down my dorm room. Maybe dust the shelves. And I think I'll just go write a, a term paper on the theology of dirt. And if I get a chance, I'll... I'll come back and I'll read that letter. Oh, did you get the letter? Yeah, I picked it up, but I'd spent three or four days and hadn't had time to read it. No, you know what I did with it. I sat down and I read it and I reread it and, and my roommate said, what did she say? And I told him what she said that was his business that wasn't mine. And, you know, I shared that. Some of you have had loved ones overseas and you've had them in the service and you got a letter. What did you do? You said, well, I'll just stick this in a book somewhere and when I get a chance, I'll pick it up and read it. No, that's not what you did. You read it, and you called somebody and read it to them, and you read it to them. Why? Because you got a letter from somebody that loved you and somebody that you loved, and you wanted to tell them about it. If you'd have had a fax machine, you would have faxed it to somebody. If you'd have had a Xerox machine, you'd have copied it and mailed it to them. You wanted to tell somebody because you were expressive, and you were extravagant, and you were exclusive, and you didn't care who knew about that. Guess what? There's a letter that's been written to you by the love of the blood of God. How's your romance going with the Lord? Have you left it? Are other books more important than this book? Is your church job more important than this book? Is your position and your standing in a religious community more important than this book? How's your love life? Are you ready to go back to first love? Are you ready to not calculate and try to figure how you're doing by the things of this world? Are you ready to just go and ask the Lord, Lord, tell me honestly, 
How am I doing in my love relationship with you? I like what Bernard Johnson says. Bernard Johnson's a great saxophone player, black saxophone player. Boy, he can play a saxophone like nobody's business. I like what he says. He says, I look up at him and say, Lord, this is Bernard. You know me. We talk all the time. And God says, that's right, Bernard. I do know you. Sometimes I think we'd have to have somebody identify ourselves in the presence of the Lord because it's so rare that we just worship Him and romance Him. And I'm talking about going before the Lord not to ask Him to bless our Sunday school class, not to ask Him to bless our church, not to ask Him to help us to be better witnesses. I'm talking about going before Jesus and just spending time on our face before Him and telling Him how much we love Him. Just love Him. No facades, no agenda, nothing to ask for, just to love Him exclusively. Now let me ask you something. What would happen today if everything were removed from the church calendar of Sherwood Baptist Church that was not an outgrowth of pure love for God? You thought about that? What would happen if we went down our church calendar, all our activities, all our committees, all our organizations, all our groups, and everything were wiped off our church calendar except that which was an outgrowth of pure, undefiled love for God? I wonder how much we'd have going on. I don't know if we'd have as many activities, but I tell you what, we'd be a people that God would love. We'd be people that would be dear to His heart, and we would be a people that He would bless in immeasurable ways because he would see us with pure motives, not having left our first love. Now, the last point is the command and the cure, verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7 of Revelation chapter 2. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Three R's. First of all, remember. Remember. Keep remembering. It is a present aorist imperative. It means that you take an action and you continue remembering. Now there's two things that he wants you to remember. Remember from where you've fallen. Go back and trace back in your life and find out where you got off the road of your hot-hearted devotion for the Lord, where you backed off and you became cold and calculating and, and doctrinal, but there wasn't any delight in it. There wasn't any joy in it. You just came to church and you just said, all right, I'll get through another Sunday. Go back and remember how it used to be when you couldn't wait to get to church, when you would cry when a song was sung, when you would rejoice when somebody rejoiced, when you were sad when somebody was sad, when you hurt and bled and ministered to people. Go back to that time and remember it and keep on remembering it. Then he says, go back to the time where you fell well, you got off the right road and get back on. Remember. Remember what God has done in your life. You see, all was not well with this church, but all was not lost. They still had a chance to rekindle the flame. They still had a chance to get back their relationship with the Lord. Dr. Havner said most folks are so subnormal that if they ever became normal, they would appear abnormal. He also said that a new Christian often has to backslide to have fellowship with most church members. 
You know what does more for a church than anything else? Is a new Christian that hadn't met a bunch of Bible scholars and hadn't gone to a bunch of conferences, doesn't have a bunch of notebooks and seminar rings and everything else, but just somebody who just loves God and believes that whatever the Word says, that's what it means, and he takes God at face value. I love to be around people like that. And I've seen a lot of Bible scholarship kill the joy in people's lives because they get so caught up in technicalities that they just can't love Jesus in a simple book that says, God loves you and has a plan for your life. Remember. Just remember. And folks, there's never a time when a church needs a mourner's bench more than when it thinks it doesn't need one. When a church thinks it doesn't need a mourner's bench, that's when it needs it the most. God is not interested in a church full of hot heads. He's interested in a church full of hot hearts. God is not interested in doctrinal uh, people and, and people who are running around with like a detective or religious bloodhounds. God wants lovers. Lovers. You ever been around anybody in love? They didn't have to tell you, did they? You remember when you were in love? You used to sit together. There was room for five other people on the front seat. Now you can drive a Mack truck between mom and dad. <laughs> Remember when you used to leave the house and you always made sure that both of you had your teeth brushed so you could kiss each other goodbye? And now you just kind of mumble from one end of the house to the other. See you later. Okay, bye. Some of us in our personal lives and in our spiritual lives need to do some remembering. Just what it was like to not know a lot, but to just love Jesus. I love to see people that love Jesus because they make me grow more than people who have all their I's dotted and all their T's crossed but are cold and calculating. Remember, then he says that we are to repent. Make a clean break. Do it now. And it's to start right now repenting and keep on repenting. And then he goes to a word, and the word is not there, but it's in that little phrase, do the first works or do the deeds you did at first. And that is the word return. Remember, repent, and return. Now, here's the principle that you need to write down by verses 5 through 7. It's either revival or removal. It is revival or removal. Notice the little phrase that he uses. Or else I will remove your lampstand. Now, if you remember what I said early in the message, I said that five out of the seven letters got this little phrase, repent or else. Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, as good a church as you would ever want to find anywhere. I mean the kind of church that people would want to join. Jesus said to them, either repent or else I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. You are in a dark place. You are in a wicked city, but I'm about to come and take your light out and give it to somebody else. Folks, God is not bound in any way to bless non-repentant people or disobedient people. 
And he says the option is revival, repentance, or removal. You see, we're so busy sometimes chopping wood that we forget to sharpen the axe and forget that by taking time to sharpen the axe, we can chop more wood and chop it better. Revival or removal. And I don't know about you, I haven't seen it in clear letters that I could spell out and take a picture of, but I've seen it in a number of places where the congregation still congregates, the services are still established, there's still a man preaching in a pulpit, but a long time ago, God came and pulled the plug and said, that's it. Y'all come, y'all keep on meeting, you can have your services, have your activities, give all your money, but I'm not going to be there anymore. This was not an idle threat that, that God made to, to this church. It was not an empty threat. For if you go to Ephesus now, there is no city there, and there is no church there. And I would submit to you that before the city died, the church died. By the way, there is something in Ephesus. Right on the outskirts of where that city used to exist, one of our members came up to me and said, I was in that area last year, and there is something in Ephesus. You, you made a mistake. I said, okay, I'm ready. What is it? He said, a brewery. They make Ephesus beer there now. God said, repent or I'll remove you as a witness in that community. The light has gone out. This past year, we were going on vacation. And so I did the patriarchal thing. I decided I'd take my children to show them where my grandparents had lived. I figured that's the thing I ought to do. And, you know, I wanted them to know and understand. I wanted to try to... I mean, you know how you do as you get older. You, it's important that your children know all these special things that were special to you, and they look at you and go, <laughs> Great, Dad, you spent your whole summer playing in an 80-acre pasture. Boy, that sounds exciting. Can we go back and get our Barbie dolls now and do all this? And I can remember taking off down that back country road, and, and as I was driving to my grandparents' place were so many fond memories in my life. And being around them and listening to them and talking to them and, and uh, remembering all those things and remembering even driving in with my parents as a young boy down those roads. I, I passed some houses. Some of them had holes in the roof. Shingles were dried up, blown away, some laying on the ground. Grass was grown up. A board was popped out of the wall. The, Every wall needed painting. Most of the windows were knocked out. A lot of them had hay stored in them. The, the porch was falling in, and the, the driveway was overgrown now with weeds and dilapidated, lifeless. And I began to think, because I looked at some of those houses, and I began to think how I could remember that there used to be somebody that lived in that house. And then I thought about what my parents would think when they went by that house for. In that house would have been a young family, and they would have maybe heard on a hot summer's night, a sound of a new baby being born and life being brought into that house and the, the joy and the, the sweetness and the smell of aromas coming from mom's cooking out of that kitchen and just kind of going across that pasture and out through the fields. The simplicity and the sweetness and the memories that in that house there was once life and there was once joy and happiness and now it's just a run-down old structure nothing happening. Nothing there but rats and hay and field mice. 
And I thought about how tragic. And then the Lord brought to mind, and He said, Son, it's not as tragic as when I go to visit some churches that were started out of love for me that I had to go and pull the light plug on because they wouldn't hear me. The Scripture says that he who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to ask you very honestly this morning. I don't believe that this particular book, this particular letter to the church at Ephesus, was given to us first by accident. Nobody looking around. But I want to ask you honestly this morning, as you sit here, are you finding yourself in a position of being cold and calculating? Maybe you're diligent. Maybe you're disciplined. Maybe you're doctrinally right. But I want to ask you a tough question. And this is going to require a response from you in some way. Has there ever been a time when you were more in love with Jesus than you are right now? Has there ever been a moment when your quiet time and your scripture memory and your Bible reading and your prayer time was sweeter than it is right now? Listen, my friend, you may be as prominent a person as there is in this church. Everybody may know you. Everybody may think that your life is okay. But Jesus would say to you this morning, if you'll hear his voice, you've left your first love. Will you come back to first love this morning? Would you come and kneel at this place? Would you come and talk with a staff member? Would you come before the Lord and say, Lord, I've got to be honest. I'm doing a lot of things in the church. And my motives are not always pure. And my heart is not always clean. And I don't love you like I have loved you. But I want to come back and restore my love relationship with you. I want to romance you. I don't care if I never get another position in this church. I just want people to know that I love you. That is my heart's desire. Some of you are here this morning and you're lost without Christ. You do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Listen, He loves you. He gave His life in love for you. And in a moment, our staff members are going to be here at the front and they're going to receive you, and if you just slip out from where you are in the balcony, in the middle of a row, at the back, maybe in the choir, it doesn't matter where you are, but you've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. There are men here who will help you to understand how you can do that. Some of you are looking for the right church home. You don't know where God wants you to put your membership, but I will tell you this, God never reveals His will for you to consider it. He reveals His will for you to obey it. Some of you know that this is where God wants you to plant your life. Maybe you're a Sunday school member, but you've never joined the church. Maybe you've just been visiting a long time. Everybody thinks you're a member, but you've never joined. You've never affiliated. You've moved everything to this community but your church letter. And now's the time for you to come. I'm going to ask you, with heads bowed and eyes closed, to stand very quietly. The choir's going to sing after I pray. 
And then I'd ask that you remain with heads bowed and eyes closed, that you do business with God. If there is in your life a lack of love, then I would encourage you to do something about that in this invitation time this morning. Heavenly Father, we have ears to hear. Now may we do what the Spirit has said to us as individual Christians and as a church. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. The choir is singing. You come right now. <laughs>